You are listening to the KM Lobby. This incredible edition is provided to you by Pioneer Knowledge Services, the 501c3, providing knowledge management as a charitable function in the USA. I am Edwin K. Morris. Joining me today in kindred KM spirit in action is Janetta Guele, based in Italy, and Monica Denise Perrin from England. Together, we welcome you to the cause. Hello, everybody, and I'm I'm actually pleased to be here, and it's our first and our first guest, Paul Corney, who's uh, currently the SIDIP uh, president, and he's widely known in the industry uh, as being a knowledge management leader and advocate, and he's uh, known worldwide. He's uh, been heavily involved in developing and rolling out some of the key standards and ISO accreditation to really help further our knowledge management practice and our profession and really help to legitimize it. And I think that's something that we, um, we're all kind to um, advocate at the moment and trying to move forward with. Paul, have I missed anything out? Um, hopefully not. I, I'm sure it will emerge as we delve into uh, this topic that often causes a number of uh, people to get quite agitated. So it should be quite fun. Agitated. It gets people agitated. Paul, come on. Hey, you, you, you never, Edwin, you never looked at the chat lines. <laughs> <laughs> There's a number of people who've always felt that uh, the idea of standards was, was something that you couldn't do. And lots of people believe you can't, you can't manage knowledge. So uh, historically, I, if, you, if you want me to go back over sort of where I came from on this journey, when I was growing up, which is more years ago than I care to remember, um, one of the challenges I, I faced back in the mid, mid-90s, I think it was, was I was setting out on a KM journey at the time, and it was hugely difficult then in about 94, 93, 94, to describe to people uh, what exactly this thing was, because it was about information management as, most, as far as most people were concerned. It was about libraries. It was about a whole range of different things. And it was a huge challenge for people to get it. Uh, so, you know, fast forward 25, 26 years, what's changed? But I think the, the, the thing that really stuck with me all the time was this idea of, of corporate legitimacy. You know, it, within an organization, if you look at an organogram, there were certain functions. And I, and I had the pleasure of, you know, working lots of different industries as advisor. And, and so, but, but there were certain functions that were always there, like personnel became HR, which became talent management. And it, and it had a body of people and it had an association and it had accreditation that were widely accepted. So it was generic. You could almost go anywhere, you know, and, and knowledge management sort of never had anything like that. Do you think it's because it's too, it's too wide? Do you think it's because our practice is so wide? Um, and tied uh, on yeah, all of the things you just mentioned, which is HR. Of, of course it does. We do do uh, training. We do the IT side of things. Is it because it's so broad that, it's, that, that it's been quite difficult to actually pin it into one area or find that home for it? Do you think that's what, it, that's what the difficulty has been? Well, I, I think human beings, what, what's the first thing we do? You know, you, I often give people when I'm running a masterclass or running an event, I ask them to 
sort of give their elevator pitch of what they think knowledge management is. If you were sitting down, I always say you were sitting down to dinner with your prospective mother-in-law or father-in-law, and they say, what do you do? And you're in knowledge management, what would you tell them? You know, which is a huge challenge. Now, in, in the past, if you go back to all those other horizontal disciplines, let's call it a horizontal discipline. If you look at the other horizontal disciplines in any organization, um, again, you've got personnel, right? So you've got CIPD, you've got marketing, you've got the Chartered Marketing Institute. You know, across, across the spectrum, you've got different disciplines. Um, they're all horizontal disciplines, but, but they have a home and they have an in, a body and they have some kind of accreditation which they can aspire towards. So if they leave an organization, they can go and work somewhere else. And they can go and work in marketing or they can go and work in communications, internal or external. So as human beings, we, we love labels. And part of the problem is what, do you call, what, do you, what label do you put on this? Don't you think the organizational structures in your comparison, right, to HR or the CFO or budgets or, or any of those other horizontal layers to the cake of an organization, the and I, I, heard, I hear what you're saying, that the adoption has been slow in an organized way. We've never really, knowledge management hasn't really represented itself real well to the rest of the world. The ISO gives us a, a flag on the play to say, here we are, this is what we're going to center ourselves on. Does the rest of that follow? If we're going to follow suit like HR, think of how many undergraduate courses there are in HR. Or, right? I mean, yeah. we're, we're just not represented anywhere in the formal academics. No. Is this the first step? Well, no, let me, uh, let me tell you, uh, you know, the other thing, uh, I, I've had the, uh, back in, I don't know, 10 years ago, I was teaching on an MSc in knowledge and information management. And it was dying because, and it died, and I ended up sitting on the board that actually killed it, which was a long story, and it was quite bizarre. But, but at the time, it was, it was partly because there was no career path. Right. They weren't going right. anywhere. So you, churn, you churned out a graduate with this, and it was a bit like, and I, I'm going to get shot for this, it was a bit like a, a, an MSc in media studies, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. So... You yeah. do have one of the masters. In there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, yeah. And uh, no, I, but is, is this is this what made you think about the first step being actually we need to get that accreditation and we get to need to get not just recognised academically but also legitimised corporately. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, it's I, it was fascinating. I, I've had for the majority of my life I've worked internationally. Um, and for, for the first 20 years, while I was an investment banker, my patch was uh, Europe, Africa, and the Middle East, predominantly Middle East. So I saw at close hand from about 70, about 90, 78 to 98, I saw at close hand how the Middle East in particular picked up standards of sorts and services and accreditation. And if you look at countries that have made huge progress like Dubai and the UAE, Part of it's been based upon some kind of sort of accreditation structure and standard structure, which people are measured against. And it was, and as I carried on going around the world, it, it really struck me that you need some kind of home. And knowledge management had so many parts of the uh, people who were 
holding the flag, going back to, to Edwin's point, people were sort of trumpeting their own ways of doing things and their own systems and their own processes. And, and if, I, if I see another quadrangle, you know, four-segment <laughs> representation, I'll go mad. The, 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 it's not about that for me. It's about, it, it may be called a different thing in different parts of the organisation, but I, I gave a speech back in, I think, five years ago, believe it or not, a Sillips annual conference in Brighton, and I used the phrase that the, I think the, the idea of a KM chartership and the ISO standards were pathways or down the road towards corporate legitimacy of knowledge management. And to Edwin's point, totally, there's, you know, there's different people with different views on the standards and whether they are, they are a valuable thing or not. But for many parts of the world, the idea of, of a, an independent benchmark, something you can go back and assess yourself against, is hugely valuable. Absolutely. Yeah. Janetta? Yeah, I found very interesting this point of view from you, Paul, honestly, having uh, an accreditation for knowledge management, but I have also some concerns. Mm. Normally, it's very difficult from my experience, based on my experience, to find a poor KM job. So if being accredited as a KM professional is a good way to find a job, that's wonderful. But how about if this is not the right way? I mean, KMers uh, always struggle to be appreciated from many organizations, especially, for example, in Italy or in South Europe, but it's not the only way. So it is not a way to, um, to reduce our possibilities to find a job where we can land and then we can disseminate our knowledge inside them and so our methodologies. That's a really good point. Go on. I mean, we are a niche uh, and... I'm wondering if being accredited as KM professional can let us to be even more restricted. You know, smaller. Yeah. Okay. Well, that would only be the, the, the worst case scenario if mm -hmm. people didn't understand the standards and accreditations. That's true. That's it. So it, it, I was trying to say that if that is rolled out, it has to be in parallel with uh, you know, building awareness and understanding within certain countries you know for example Italy Spain you know mm -hmm. and, and, and Europe do we know if that's if that's actually going to be the plan for rolling these standards out that they actually have that um in that awareness in those countries um mm -hmm. question do I do I know every country that uh, that's adopted the standard no um but I do know that it was very well received Normally, this, the ISO process, having sat on the KM Standards Committee, the BSI one in the UK, which was very heavily involved in the drafting and, uh, and sort of submission of the standards, um, it, was, it had an incredibly strong response because ISO standards have to be submitted for approval by all the member states. And all the member, I think it has something like an 80% approval rating. The standards were, were sort of pushed through in a way that uh, suggested that, it, that there was a satisfaction level was achieved. To Janetta's point about does it make sense, um, are you constricting people in the knowledge management profession? If you, it depends what you, whether you think of accreditation as some kind of university discipline, uh, possibly not. 
the way the way the the, the SILIP accreditation is working is it's a self certification which is assessed. So it's about your portfolio. It's not you passing an exam, which I think has got much more validity. So it is showing your general all round experience. You have a mentor. You have somebody who is you know wise in this profession. And at the end of that, you're assessed as to whether you have the all-round capability and you've demonstrated um, your capability to the satisfaction of the people who award the certification. So it, it's, it's more, for me, that's a better way of doing it rather than all sitting down, passing an exam, which doesn't necessarily mean anything. Yeah. I agree totally what you're saying, uh, Paul, yeah. because I think the tested methodology of proving proficiency is not as clear as someone working, like you say, with a portfolio approach of what have you done? What have you completed? You know, project-based, uh, performance-based, that's way more important than passing a test in my view. So I, I think this, I think the whole ISO procedures and not all industries care about standards. You know, it's not, it, it's not like it's going to no. change everything, but it is the first step of a validation of who and what we do and are and what we're for that did not exist before. And the cool thing is with ISO is that knowledge management is also implanted in the HR ISO. Uh, uh, so now yeah. we're, we're starting to feel out where we show up in these organizational structures. Well, it, it actually, Edwin, to your point, it actually, mm. it actually is part of the, the umbrella group it sits under, it sits above it, is actually HR. So the, so the, the KM standard fits, sits within that. I think it's ISO uh, Working Party 260, something like that. Let me, let me just tell you a little, little bit of a story, where, which when I realized the value of this, I had the great pleasure of working on an assignment for three and a half years with um, the largest company in Iran. And um, it was after the new president was elected in 2013, August 2013. And one of the drivers for that, believe it or not, this company uh, has something like 35 operating units, 30,000 people, you know, massive conglomerate. And one of its big divisions was locomotion. So it produced the most amazing engines, which in the end, uh, Siemens were licensing some of their technology before um, we had the uh, episode of the sanctions again. At the time, I think it was the Irish standard. Iris is the standard for locomotive manufacturers, which none of us would necessarily have anything about. But I think Article 40 of that um, said you had to produce evidence of, of effective knowledge management. And so there you are, right? So if you were producing, even producing a locomotive, if you couldn't evidence that, and then you couldn't get the kite mark for locomotion. And, and it's the same issue. You know, why do people do ISO? Well, partly going back to the quality thing, because your clients demand it. I now, think, if you, you're going... So I was going to say, one, one, it just struck me that you're talking about industries, and I'm thinking one of the, the industries I think would benefit from something like that is the NHS or the, you know, the healthcare industry at the moment, and it being, um, needs to be more evidence-based, and I think that's a, 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 something that we've learned from, obviously, um, other organisations and other industries, and I think that's something that potentially we could use to move us even further forward um, on an international well, I, scale. 
as well as that. I, I, I guess. I mean, it, it's very difficult, isn't it? I, I can recall having lunch one day. I got invited into lunch with the finance director of HSBC in the city, right? You're a lucky man. Well, it Paul. was. A, <laughs> I happened to be passing, but 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 the the guy who the guy who was the the guy who was a good friend was the chief knowledge officer. He's now based in Hong Kong. He said, "Look, come in and meet and meet the chap." And we we sat down. We we're having lunch, and I always remember the conversation. It was fascinating. If it wasn't, if there was no kind of evidence, it was it was evidence based, and it's that challenge about evidence based. And I, and I could tell every story under the sun about stuff that I'd done, about the difference it made. Here's a great example. But, but you need that combination of some form of substantiation, which a standard and or accreditation gives you, uh, which I think is quite important. He, if I could have said to him at the time, OK, well, here is something that's independent. And here's a sort of roadmap, and the way that we do this maps directly back. Then, then it would have been more persuasive to him than me talking about, uh, you know, the fact that somebody being able to learn a lesson meant that we did something better, or that Airbus built the A350 aeroplane as a result of a peer assist, a giant peer assist they did on the 380. So the A350 entered service as the most efficient airline in history because of the peer assist and all the work the knowledge management team facilitated on as a result of learning from the A380. Well, these use cases are fabulous to have, isn't it? I mean, this is, where, do we, where can we find somewhere where these use cases you know, exist? I mean, where, where's a natural home for someone like myself <laughs> to go and find out where... Well, yeah, yeah, so, Monica, this is going to be a shameless plug, but if you read, <laughs> if you read the two books, if you read Navigating the Minefield... Right, which was the first book I came uh -huh. authored with uh, Patricia. Uh, it, the, the Airbus story is in there, as is the U.S. Army, as is lots of others, and and I'm sure you've read the Kane Cookbook, and you know, and that maps directly to to the ISO standard. And the reason the reason the three of us, Chris Collis and being the other one, the reason we wrote it like we did was to make sure that people were able to bring to life something that was. It's a very dry subject. I mean, it's 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 great for insomniacs. <laughs> the ice. <laughs> so you need something that's a little bit more light-hearted. That, but actually, our view was we can map the ISO standard uh, to many of the world's exemplar organisations and and map their KM activity mm. to that. And then we created the KM Canvas as a way of discussing and looking at. Um, how somebody's KM program works. Seeing as you've got such a global footprint and experience, is there a certain region and or culture that adopts KM better? No. <laughs> uh, that's a good, a good answer. I, I, <laughs> I think KM is so special and it, 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 it changes from a culture to another, from an organization to another organization. So it's a pretty difficult, no? I couldn't agree more, Junetta. No, here's a story, right? I, I, was, um, I was chairing a conference in Hong, in Hong Kong um, five, six years ago. It was really interesting at the time. We were trying to get people to engage with, with the sort of the audience and I discovered that the only way that you could get people, there, there's, there's very much a thing in Asia about deference to your elders and not wanting to be speaking in public and, and, and to be, you know, to be only speak when asked. 
And I found when you when you gave permi people permission to do something in the form of a game, it changed the way people behaved. So I, um, at the end of any event, I would ask someone a question. I'd, I'd pre sort of plant them in the audience, go and then say, look, I'd walk around with the microphone, ask them a question and say, look, what do you think about that? Um, and they'd come out like so and so. I'd say, okay, choose somebody else. So the point was it was from within them. They would then go and hand the microphone to somebody. And that became mm -hmm. much more of a collaborative thing, but it was playing to the culture. To, to, so that's to your point, Janetta. Mm -hmm. It very much depends on the culture. I'll give you another Iranian story, right? At the time, they came up with a code of ethics, the organization I was working with. Translating from Farsi back to English was not good. We were about to run a series of after action reviews on some massive projects that they'd been doing. And one of the articles in the um, code, of, code of Ethics was, subordinates must be given the right to recompense the company in the event of any mistakes. Yeah, that's such a heavy stuff. This is, this is stopping people from, from speaking out, from sharing knowledge. This is actually goes against the whole of our principles, right? Well, it, it's, it, it goes against what we in the West think our principles yeah. are. But, uh -huh. but that's the whole point. It depends where you are in the world. Okay? I'm, happy, I'm lucky enough to live in, in Lisbon as well. And, you know, another Southern European uh, country, there are things that you do and don't do and things you say and don't say. You know, and, and silence is, is actually often a weapon as well as a way of expressing a response. But, but in a Western culture, we tend to want to fill the vacuum all the That's time. True. So, so the culture thing is, what I found to, to, to Janetta's point is that very often, and, and I've used it extensively throughout my career, is, is narrative and story is one of the best ways of bringing knowledge management to life, but also of getting people to talk. You tell a story and then and you express it in a different way. The company I was managing partner of uh, back in, I think, end of 2008, 2009, we, we went and did a big piece of work with the Asian Development Bank in Manila, which was around the use of narrative and story to underpin a lot of their KM practices. And it was quite interesting because on the staff was the former head of CNN Asia, I think at the time, who was... Um, was driven by a journalistic approach to narrative and stories, whereas um, in, a, in a knowledge management uh, way, it, sort of the examples emerge. We, the other, I'll give you another example, right, um, from the Caribbean. I did a piece of work, leading a piece of work for the Central Bank of the Caribbean, the Caribbean Development Bank, which is like the World Bank for the Caribbean. And one of the uh, really interesting examples was around the whole idea of evaluation and the way that uh, most development institutions, Janetta, you will know this, focus on figures and numbers, don't they? When you do any, any evaluation, you say, I've done this project. And I always remember this school project. There was, I won't say the country because it would embarrass them, but there was a, a project, a school's project, and it got all the ticks. It was done on time. It was gleaming new. Uh, they didn't overspend, you know, blah, blah, blah. And when you ask the basic question, well, how many people go there? 
Um, well, actually, it was still gleaming new because very few people go there because they couldn't afford to go there because they couldn't afford, there was no bus service. And so the, the evaluation was perfect, right? Mm -hmm. The project was perfect, but it missed, the, it missed the whole point, which was about the story. Had they have told the story of the, of the school through the lives of people who were, were or weren't going there, they'd have got a different different perspective. So I, I've always believed you have to manage both principles. And in a way, going back to what I was saying about the cookbook, that was how our, our the whole narrative around that was to bring a dry subject to life. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I've spent more than 15 minutes, but I hope that helps. It's super That's interesting, right. to be honest. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, in order to, to put an end, end on this whole program, I think we ought to just go around the the hosts here, and if you've got a burning question, let's ask it. Uh, Monica and then Janetta. My question will be about the KM Charter, because I think we've spoken about quite a lot of um, evaluations and standards and accreditation, and we spoke about the Charter, you know, seeing what you've just been speaking about. Um, is, this, is the KM Charter something that's going to evolve? Um, because you mentioned that um, it isn't just going to be, you know, passing a test. It's, it's well, yeah, a it portfolio of things. Is it going to be something that actually changes as our industry changes and adapts with it? Paul, if you could just describe what the KM Charter is to begin with and then answer yeah. the question, please. The KM Chartership is, a, you, you are asked to present a portfolio of your work, a series of reflection journals, um, and then they will be evaluated by uh, a body, right, who, who do already do that within SILIP. Um, and you're then de designated as whether you have qualified for chartership or not. So, and, and I think the answer to that, because it's not saying you have to evidence, you, there are things you have to evidence that you've done and you have to, uh, and it might be something like, so for example, Monica, you might have, um, help to transform an organization and set up communities which have resulted in dramatic improvements in the way an organization works. That would be slightly different, say, maybe from Janetta, who did uh, an incredible thing, bringing lessons back into an organization that helped the next project to move forward. Th those things will evolve naturally because of the state of, of what we're doing. Um, and, and the second thing is, of course, you could then there's fellowship. I mean, there's a number of prominent names in the industry who are actually working through their fellowship at the moment. And, and you will continue to be assessed as you move forward. So you can be reassessed to keep, to keep your um, practice current. I, I think just to pick that up, what I've taken most comfort from, if you look at, you mentioned health earlier on, look at the work that was done by um, Sue Lacey Bryant yeah. and the people are, in Health Education England, um, their knowledge and library services now use something called the Professional Knowledge Skills Base, PKSB, um, as their backdrop for the way that their knowledge and library professionals move forward. Um, and so that is one of their foundations. And people are working towards chartership within the organization. It's part of their step on, on moving forward. I mean, and, and this goes to your point of, of people actually, um, and, and, and Janetta's point right at the beginning of, of, of our chat, which looked at, is this accreditation going to stop people from, you know, becoming more niche or is it going to be more open? And I think, you know, having an example like the uh, you know, work that Sue's doing, it's obviously something that's become more progressive. 
Yeah. And it does open more. I, I've been I've been lucky. I mean, in my role of president, one of the things I've set up is I call it in conversation with. So every Thursday, I reach out to somebody who can be anywhere, somebody in St. Andrews, Copenhagen, anywhere, all right, um, who's a member, and I have a half an hour conversation with them. And I give them the same sort of questions. I ask them about surprises, what's a day in the life look like. And, and I've heard the most amazing stories. Last week, I spoke to a lady who um, is leading the uh, charge here on looking at the impact mm. of uh, long COVID. And, okay. and her, um, her research, and I just put her in touch with uh, a, a psychologist and psychiatrist who's actually coming out the other side, who's, who's, who's a performance um, psychologist, who's actually helped athletes and others get over the effects of long COVID. Um, and, and they're trying to build those back into their uh, learning models for treating the, the, the impact of it. So that, that's where knowledge management, Absolutely. for me, has a massive Absolutely. opportunity. Yeah. The point is, yeah. yeah, I think, Paul, you just answered my burning question, but if you had only 60 seconds of your time to describe or to answer to this question, I am a clean professional, for example, and I ask you, I have just a few funds to spend on accreditation, and I'm comparing being accredited with a chartering or like or with Prince too, for example. So why should I choose your program, your SILIP program, your SILIP accreditation and not Prince too? Because Prince too works perfectly okay if you are in a project, right? If you're managing mm -hmm. a project. Uh, chartership is a much broader spectrum for me. It's not, it's not you know, it, it, it's, one is horizontal, one is vertical, right? If you like, so so right. Prince to me is a vertical response to uh, to a, and it's perfectly valid and it's great if you're in project management, but knowledge managers. The great thing for me has always been about knowledge managers or whatever you're called. You know that the the questions that people ask haven't changed since the mid nineties. They're the same questions. You know, it's how can you do better at what you do? How can you win more business? How how can you learn? The, the two words I hate more than any other are lessons learned when they're uttered by politicians, right? Because it's an excuse to kick something into the long grass and do nothing about it. And the problem we have at the moment is, and, and go back to COVID, right? If you look at, there was a, a study done, and Monica knows this, I, I helped set up and was part of our, our city's COBRA committee. We have a COBRA committee. And one of the pr first presentations I gave to them, which was our MP and the leaders of the council, the civic leaders, the health sector, police, one of them first one was to look back and say, in nine, I think it was in 2016, uh, the cabinet office ran a, pro a project called Cygnus. Go back and look at Operation Cygnus. Um, it was the Lincolnshire Resilience Forum, I think, amongst others. And, okay. and a lot of the recommendations were made in there, but were never actioned. We never spent the money on it, you know. So the, and, and my final thought on that, and I'll, I'll go back to a, a good friend of mine, uh, was a guy called Professor Victor Newman, who some of you may know. When he took over, I think it was the chief learning officer of Pfizer. Um, I think it's a story he always tells. Uh, he, he, had a, he went off to um, 
a country in the Far East who I won't name to uh, to a, an exercise, a lessons learned exercise, and I think they came up with 217 lessons. <laughs> Quite a lot. But, yeah, and, and his comment, well, exactly. And, and his comment was, I'll have three, you know, basically, because the problem is, unless you actually feed, and this is where knowledge management's fun, unless you feed what you do back into process and you improve the process, it doesn't go anywhere. I agree. It's not yeah. an action. It, it, to it? me, it's, it's, and that's one of the critical things. And that's where there is a danger with knowledge management, that it's, uh, you know, it, this whole idea of, yes, we've done a lesson learned exercise. Well, uh, they're lessons identified, not lessons learned. My experience is similar to that in the lessons learned realm, uh, working with the Intel Center at the U.S. Army, that you have to integrate to learn. So if you don't integrate, that's the final step, right? Reintegrate and make action mm. come out of that learned mm. lesson. But uh, my final question to you is this. So are you uh, a proponent of knowledge management academics being in a business school or library sciences school? <laughs> I, know, I, I, do you know, right? <laughs> I, I could almost say something. Do you know this is going to sound awfully flippant? I don't care. <laughs> and, 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 and partly the reason I don't care to that example. And l let me give you another thing. There, there is, there's, an, there's something going on at the moment. There's a bit of excitement about where do you house learning? Where do you house teaching? You know, I, I remember having long conversations with people because I, I, I've taught, I've been on the, the faculty of a couple of universities and I teach sometimes still at the International Islamic School in uh, University in Kuala Lumpur. And it, it's always struck me as one of the problems is, do you, are you producing knowledge from, an acad from academia, which can then be applied. So is that pure knowledge that is then applied for the benefit of man? Or do you produce curricula that allows people to pursue careers? Because one of the challenges that organizations always tell me is that people, they need so much time of people coming out of university to, to make them sort of effective within the organization. So that's, that's why I, I, I answered don't care, Edwin, to that extent, because I think it depends on where you sit on that spectrum. Do you believe it's better to produce pure knowledge out of a knowledge and learning institution, or do you produce people who have applicable knowledge that they can take into a profession? Well, don't you think every industry in academics that's represented just fosters more PhDs ultimately? I mean, the academic institution is to make PhDs, of right? course, to, to regenerate new knowledge and keep the keep the engine running around academic process and learning and discovery, right? So, why not have knowledge management should oh. be at a hub of a business operation or business school versus library sciences because library sciences is a very small pocket of the big world, and. And, and the relevancy, in, in yeah. my view, the relevancy of library sciences is not what it was 50 years ago. A lot of libraries have had to change and adapt with the times to become more relevant, to find more customer service focused entertainment and infotainment. But yeah, I mean, we're getting gyms in our one soon. If you look at um, 
there's a, if you look at, the, well, you, this is, a, again, a plug, right, 30th of June, put this in your diary. I'm, I'm putting it in right now, 30th of June. L L lunchtime on the 30th of June, uh, I'm going to be hosting the second presidential debate, right, which will be, and in that, I've invited a lady called Kate Thompson, who is an award-winning author, uh, wow. journalist for the Sunday Times, The Guardian, has written 10 books. Yeah. And I think I've shared with you, Monica, with her permission, Brilliant. her manuscript. You've read it. Yeah, yeah? I'm reading it. Yeah. And, it, and it's about, and that will be published next year, but it is about um, Bethnal, 100 years of Bethnal Green Library. Mm -hmm. Right, and it's so it's tracing the evolution of that library from uh, its early days through to today, uh, and how it survived the war, and it's being told through a hundred librarians yeah, through who she's interviewed. Through the eyes, through the eyes and the lenses, and and that's the stories. And 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 Kate and I are going to be having a discussion much like this around that on the thirtieth. But there are other examples for like living libraries, which are. Uh, being produced at the moment. Um, last year, there were some really interesting pieces of work that were produced, um, and and they're moving forward. Silipa are actually involved in some of them, and this idea of of making libraries more than the dusty place where you got books. One of the wonderful stories that came out of uh, one of my in conversations with was was the with a young lady who's a library supervisor in the Isle of Wight. And she's just, she's never actually, hasn't, I don't think she'd actually been to a new library. She was sort of taking over there. And one of the first things she did was to paint a mural between like the housing association, which were next to the library. She painted a mural along so that it encouraged people. And she said one of her mm -hmm. statements was something like, um, no one trains us to be social workers. Mm -hmm. Because actually they are today, they're, they're fulfilling a role which is which is like mm -hmm. social workers, and and if you look at the Kruger report, which the Prime Minister commissioned, um, which is now sitting with the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, one of the findings of that is that libraries should be like the collective hub of the community. Yeah, and that yeah. means it has to have a much Absolutely. a much greater yeah. a greater role. Um, but it means that people have mm -hmm. to upskill. To your point, Edwin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a civic implication more so with that structure now, mm. I think. And it kind of goes back to the point of, so would knowledge management be best suited in a library sciences school or a business it school? Well, honestly, <laughs> if I can say my my point of view, I hope that any KM accreditation starting from CILIP uh, can help to have a semester or be an entire course in any type of university because we should start to push in KM with a younger generation. So I think it's not a matter or a question or of is better having KM courses in business or in library? Because I think KM is also oh. present in engineer or in astrophysics or in mathematics. So if any accreditation or any other course or any ISO can help to, uh, to push KM in any type of university, starting from university, that would be already a success. My, my final thought to pick up on that, Janetta, is that the, that the whole point of the chartership is that it will recognize any career, any, any degree course or anything exactly. else that you've done because it feeds Perfect. into it. You know, that's, that's part of your, 
your portfolio. And it, it's just the same. I, you know, I won't, shame, won't name and shame people, but there's lots of different programs out of there. They should be part of it, be, albeit Henley, albeit yeah. the, the, you know, KMI or others, all of who've got perfectly valid um, functional programs, but they should be recognised as part of it. But otherwise, the difference is this is independent. It's by Royal Charter and it's not a profit-making. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Good point. The others have got a skin in the game. You know, I, I stood up in Hong Kong. I was completely popular a couple of years ago when there were people sort of promoting all of the new uh, programs that were out there. And, and but, but they, the whole point was somebody mm -hmm. was making money out of it. It was partly a profitable thing. Yeah. Silip doesn't have that. It's, it's by Royal Charter. So, you know, it's a charity. Well, it's the whole point. Not, hey, sorry, I've gone too long. That's a big point. That's a big point. It's a big strength. That's, that is a very big point because Pioneer Knowledge Services is that KM charity in the U.S. And so mm. I hear what you're saying. You're singing my tune, Paul. Paul, to wrap things up, what's your definition of knowledge management? How about something about helping people and organizations to make better decisions? I cannot agree more, honestly. <laughs> Thank you. Paul, do you have a charter ship? Me? Well, no, I, I help set it up. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that's poacher turned gamekeeper, isn't it? <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us today, Paul. It was a blast. Thank you. All right. Good, good to talk to you. Thank you. It, it was what you said. I, it's a good conversation. Bye. You have enjoyed the incredible edition of the KM Lobby. Please feel free to join the cause. We believe KM is and can benefit all. Do what you can and add to the wave of positive change. Your donations are a welcome way to make sure your vote is counted in this important movement. Explore more at pioneer-ks.org.